0: We are going to pick up in the book of Jeremiah tonight in chapter 25. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that we uh, will gather again next week for our Sunday evening service, uh, November the 10th, but that will be our last one on Sunday evenings, and we will resume in Jeremiah on Wednesdays, December 4th. Okay, So we'll take the rest of November off, uh, and then we'll return in December Uh, Same network, new time, Wednesday nights uh, at 6 o'clock. Tonight, we pick up in chapter 25. A lot of the times, the way the prophets work, in fact, a lot of the times, the way the Bible works prophetically um, is kind of like watching someone paint. And so it starts with just the background colors and the shades and kind of the space uh, and then the details, as they're filled in, get more and more specific. Uh, it's the same here in Jeremiah. He's been focusing primarily on the inevitability of the exile into Babylon. But he's yet to put a timestamp stamp on it, either when it's going to happen or how long it's going to last for. And it's here in chapter 25 that those details come to light. And so notice verse 1 here, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, that date isn't actually very relevant. The fourth year as opposed to another year, the timestamp that's more significant is the parenthetical there. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so it was As, at a distance, Nebuchadnezzar, who Jeremiah has already mentioned a couple of times, steps into his role as king, that the following prophecy is given. Verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. And so this timestamp leads us to 23 years of Jeremiah being on the scene all the way from his calling back in chapter one. He's spoken uh, through the final years of the reign of Josiah, through the reign, the very short reign of his son Jehoahaz, uh, and then through Jehoiakim. Uh, and he will still be standing with Jehoiachin and then finally Zedekiah. But at this point, he's been giving the same message for 23 years, which is this is all ending in exile. Repent. But Judah had not listened. Verse 4 You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way. And evil deeds and dwell upon the land that he has given to your fathers from of old and forever. So it's not just 20 years of Jeremiah's ministry, but hundreds of years of God sending his prophets persistently to Judah, calling them to live righteously so that they would stay in the land. He continues in verse 6 Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, then I will do no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, to your own harm. Therefore, okay, all of that is review. All of that is just looking over Jeremiah's ministry, looking over Judah's history, and here, therefore, we get the new data. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, remember the newly appointed king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitant, against all these surrounding nations. And I will devote them to destruction. Notice two things there. First, Jeremiah explicitly uses the language here of servitude. He's my servant, okay? That's a very popular word that God uses for Israel. Israel, my servant. It's a very popular word that he uses for his prophets and for sometimes the kings, but now he takes this foreign power who is threatening the sovereignty of Judah, and he says, he is my servant. He's working on my behalf. He's doing my bidding. I have called and appointed him, and he will carry out my work, okay? That's the first zinger, in this prophecy the first jarring line the second one is that last phrase i will devote them to destruction okay that is in hebrew a technical term it's one that is most common all the way back in the book of joshua during the holy wars of israel okay anything that was devoted to destruction was to be leveled without anything standing without any living thing left the whole thing was to be as if it were a burnt offering offered entirely unto the Lord. You remember when Jericho goes down this fortress city, God says, devote the whole thing to destruction. It's all mine. And Achan takes a few things for himself, and that's what leads to the failure at Ai. Okay, in other words, Jeremiah uses this language and says, God is bringing about again a holy war, but this time you're the enemy. This time you're the one who's devoted to destruction He continues here, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. Most of that imagery we've already encountered, right? The joys that come with the continuity of one generation to the next. Weddings and births and funerals, all of that's coming to an end. The land's gonna be desolate. The last two though, Uh, the uh, grinding of the millstone, that's work being done in the land, and then the light of the lamp, that's inhabitation, right? There's two types of light in nature. There is natural light of the sun, moon, and stars, and then there's what we would call the light of the lamp, man-made light. All that's going away, okay? The land is going to be emptied out. Look at verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here it is, made specific and explicit, 70 years. Now, just a couple of things. I I don't think we always stop and think about how time works. And so I I want you to think about these 70 years in two different ways, okay? I want to use two different metrics or two different timescales for you. The first timescale I want to use is the human lifespan timescale. In that sense, 70 years is basically a final judgment. Very few people who experience the siege of Babylon around Jerusalem will ever return to the land again. It will be 70 long years, a a full human lifespan. Just a handful of people in the book of Ezra return and remember what the temple looked like because they saw it as children. But most of the people here in their 20s and above will never return to Judah. And so in that sense, this sentence is a sentence of finality, of totality. But there's another reason why this number is striking. Uh, Not only is it it total and final for most of the inhabitants of Judah, but it's also when you weigh it against the timescale of empire, a surprisingly short amount of time. Okay? There is a handful of empires that we encounter across the pages of scripture. Before this was the Assyrian empire, which lasted for 300 years. Following Babylon is the Persian empire, which lasts for 200 years. And then there's the Greek empire that lasts for 350 years. And then there's the Roman empire, which is still the record setter of all empires with well over a thousand years. 70 years in the life of an empire is a blink of an eye. When God says here the exile is going to be 70 years and as we'll see, then God is going to bring judgment on Babylon, that is pressing the boundaries of plausibility for a world superpower that's dominated everything to lose their grasp so quickly. It's, it's like uh, you know the heavyweight champion knocking down the final oppo- opponent and the ref is counting and he's counting, and he gets to five, and the other guy gets up and just sends a knock-out punch, and the fight is over. It's very surprisingly short in that sense, just 70 years, okay? Now, there's another reason why this is significant. Now, in terms of its measurement, there are a handful of ways that you can get basically to specifically 70 years from beginning to end, but none of them are terribly compelling, However, if you just look at the Babylonian captivity proper, meaning from the destruction of Jerusalem to the return of it, it is clearly and obviously 68 years, around 70, okay? There are ways to find that extra two years there. I just don't find any of them to be compelling, and this this passage doesn't require that sort of specificity. If it said 71 years, I would expect specificity. But when it says 70... It's uh, it's general enough, but this is exactly what comes to pass. And remember, Jeremiah is not alive to see the return of the inhabitants to Judah. He dies imprisoned in Egypt, presumably, well before this takes place. He's not a young man at this destruction, but well into his old age, and so he won't survive the 70 years here. And so it's a, a profound and, and surprising prediction, but it's more than that, of course. It's the word of the Lord, and it's a sentence. And as we'll see later, it's a sentence that has significant meaning. It's a just sentence. Okay? But what I want to draw your attention to that's very interesting about this is as we read this passage here, we read the book of Jeremiah as we have it today. But interestingly enough, we also know that Daniel, as he sits at the end of the Babylonian Empire, as at the introduction of the Persian Empire, as he sits all the way over in Babylon, he also opens up to this passage. And in his daily or devotional or deep study reading, encounters this prophecy and does some mental math and realizes, hey, wait a minute, that's about where we are now. And so if you turn just very quickly over to Daniel chapter 9, There are many places throughout the Bible where we see the Bible being uh, self-aware, where the Bible is uh, engaging with other portions of the Bible, where one author of Scripture is meditating on a passage of Scripture somewhere else, uh, or quoting from, or alluding to. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, there are only a few places where we find the authors of Scripture or the characters of a narrative in Scripture, like we find here, reading another passage of scripture. And remember that Daniel uh, is alive and writing in the time of this Babylonian captivity. There is no temple, okay? Any ancient writings of Israel have been scattered and held onto and preserved in places. Daniel being, um, you know, part of the educated class uh, the magi, if you will, of Babylon, he has access to the Babylonian library. And interestingly enough, that includes a scroll of Jeremiah. And so we read here in Daniel 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived In the books, the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he does the mental math. He reads in Jeremiah. He realizes that the time is just about out. And what he begins to do is he begins to confess and intercede for his people. He does what Jeremiah was always calling the people to do, to own up to their sin and seek again the Lord. And he does it collectively, representatively, if you will. He doesn't just intercede for Judah, but he enters in and he says, we, O Lord, have forsaken you. Our fathers have turned from you. And he says, turn now and bring us back and do what you said you would do. And it's interesting that it's on the heels of this that an angel flies to Daniel to give him an answer, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen at the vision of the first, came to me in swift flight, in the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I've come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." I love this because it looks like, uh, you know, um, uh, Gabriel is held here on retainer, and God is just waiting for Daniel to pray, and as soon as he does, he sends him with a message. But the message he gives here, look at verse uh, verse 24, 70 weeks, or literally 77s are decreed about your people in your holy city. And so Daniel perceives the ending of the 70 years, and Gabriel comes and says, yes, but there's a 70 times seven more years God has planned. And he lays out the uh, prophetic calendar for what's to come, and it's the big one. As we've already seen in Jeremiah, God doesn't just plan to bring Israel back. He plans to bring Israel back and then bring a savior and then bring all the nations in repentance and bring the end of all things. It's all bound up in this plan, but it's this prophecy in Daniel that moves forward in that plan. In fact, look what will happen by the time the 77s are complete. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, to, to bring all the prophecies to come to pass and then finally to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time and after 62 weeks an anointed one shall, have to be, uh, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So notice that in this new calendar of 490 years is another time that Jerusalem is to be sacked and destroyed. And then finally, verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week And half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the abomination shall one come who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so if we stitch from Jeremiah 25 to Daniel 9 and then jump into the Olivet Discourse, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, and then jump all the way to Revelation, we'll see that that's the sum total of God's plan contained right there But I don't think we always notice that it's not just instigated by Daniel's reading of Jeremiah, it's symbolically attached to that. And so it starts with 70 years and then added to that is 70 times 7 more years to finish everything that was begun with the Babylonian exile. Returning back to chapter 25. Verse 12, then after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Now there's another place where we see an editorial reference, a self-reference, not here to other books of the Bible but to the book that we're actually reading okay there's a recognition that God has already been speaking on these things and there's an editorial comment I would suggest probably from Jeremiah's disciple Baruch who we will see operates as a recorder for Jeremiah's ministry and he references here that all those things are going to come to pass at the end of 70 years verse 14 for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Thus, the Lord God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Okay, and so here, after the 70 years is laid out, Jeremiah is given a new commission. He's given a cup, a cup of God's wrath. And we can't necessarily tell here if this is uh, a, a vision that Jeremiah has and then conveys or an acted out parable because as we'll see in just a minute we're going to find a consultation happening in Jerusalem where the king gathers together the kings of the surrounding nations and puts them all in one room and so maybe Jeremiah just shows up cup in hand and is just playing the waiter and going around and saying here have a drink right and either way though it, the cup here we're told is the cup of the wine of wrath. And this image is a persistent and a consistent one throughout the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah references it. Ezekiel references it. The Psalms reference it. And so when Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is wrestling with what's about to come next, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the cup that he has in mind. Okay. It's the cup of God's judgment. What was needed and necessary, Paul tells us, what God was trying to accomplish, according to Romans chapter 4, was a means so that God might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's the only way. That's the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, where Jesus took that cup and drank it to the dregs on our behalf, the full totality of God's wrath. And the wrath cup shows up one more time in the book of Revelation in chapter 14, where there it says it's mixed to full strength and to the brim, and God will make the nations drink it. Okay, And so it's this, it's this image of judgment and he's told here to take it to each of the nations, the kings of the nations, verse 16, they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So it's not really a cup. It's not really drunkenness. It's actually war. But the images of the cup, verse 17, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, that's where Job is from, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ascalon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. Notice by this time, the Philistines are on the decline. So we usually think of the five major cities of the Philistines, and there's only three and a half listed here, right? One of them is just the remnants, Ashdod, okay? Edom. Moab, the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, that's to the northeast of Israel along the coast, all the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dadan, Tama, Buzz, and all who cut corners in their hair, all of those are um, nomadic peoples from the Arabian desert. okay, um, All the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media. Now, the Medians are the ones who are going to join with Persia and eventually overthrow Babylon, but first, like everyone else, they get squashed by Babylon. But then notice this, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the earth, and after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Now, your translation may there say the king of Shishak, okay? And we know that Shishak is a synonym for Babylon, which is why sometimes the translators have filled it in. It may even be more than that. Okay. Uh, if you take, in Hebrew alphabet, Babylon, and just reduce it to its consonants, it's basically B-B-L. Okay. Now, one of the uh, simplest ways that you can make a code language, when you have an even-numbered alphabet, like we do in English, like they do in Hebrew, we have 26 letters, they have 22, is you just take the alphabet backwards and you put it underneath the alphabet forwards and you just transpose the letters, okay? And so in that case, A would be Z and B would be Y. Does that make sense? What's interesting is when you take Babylon, BBL, and you do that to it, you get SSK, Shishak, this other word. And so it may have at one time served as code language to talk about Babylon without Babylon knowing you were talking about it. Now, the thing is, Jeremiah doesn't have a problem with identifying Babylon and the judgment to come on it in other parts of the book. But we do find this habit of referencing this mythical Shishak, okay? But we have to be honest here and recognize it's never explained for that reason. It could just be one of those coincidental things that just so happens to spell both of those ways. Um, but it may be here um, that it's subtle. But nonetheless, notice the point here. God is going to use Babylon like a towel to scrub up all the nations, and then he's going to toss the towel. Okay? It makes me think of um, the cat in the hat, right? Where the cat comes over, and he does something fun, and it stains a piece of furniture. And so he uses something to clean the furniture, and then the thing that he used is stained, and then he finds another way to stain it, and I think he washes it in the tub, and then the tub is stained, and the stain just moves around the place, okay? But eventually, he's going to take Babylon to deal judgment on all the nations, including Israel, and then on Babylon themselves. Okay, verse 27, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, say to who, remember the kings of all these nations, drink, be drunk, and vomit, Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. Again, if he does, as we'll see in a minute, actually act this out in this little, uh, you know, ancient Near East council that comes up, you can imagine after he's played it out a few kings in a row, people get wise to the prank, Right? So somebody takes a drink and he goes, you've drank the wrath of God, drink, be drunk, fall down and never stand up again. And he goes to the next one and goes, here, have a drink, right? About the third or fourth time they start to refuse and they say, God says, when they refuse, make them drink, tell them you must drink. It's unavoidable, right? God is going to do this, verse 29, for behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name and shall you go unpunished? He says, if I'm going to judge my own people, will I not be just with all the other nations? If they don't get a hall pass, will you really escape from judgment? You shall not, he says, go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold. And shout like those who tread grapes. Okay, remember this is before any sort of amplification system. And so just the loudest thing they can think of is a vineyard party when the grapes are being tread. Okay, it's going to be like that, he says, it's going to be loud. In fact, he says, against all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 31, the clamor will resound to the ends of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. And so notice here, what's happening to Jerusalem, what's happening to Judah, is actually a universal, an international, a worldwide event of judgment, comparable to the flood, even though it's being carried out in a different way. In fact, it says here, he's entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation. A great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Now earlier, we saw that prophecy and that was going to be the valley of of Hinnom. And then it was going to be all of Jerusalem. And here Jeremiah extends it across all of the nations of the earth as if, as if it's going to be, again, a worldwide judgment. Verse 34: wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. Okay, so he says here: all the kings of the earth, you had one job, you failed to do the one thing to bring justice to take care of the flocks, and because of that, you're going to be scattered. Verse 35, no refuge will remain for the shepherd, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of their flock, for the Lord is laying waste to their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for the land has become a waste. Because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Now, at first read, that last verse may sound like, okay, there's a lion, he's in the cave, that's safe. When the lion comes out, that's unsafe. But when you read it closer, like a lion, he's left his lair for the land has become a waste, it actually, I think, is trying to evoke the image of a lion who's abandoned his cave. What would it be like if you found a cave that used to belong to a lion? It's just a pile of bones right? I think that's the idea. It's, it's an abandoned cave that used to belong to the devourer. It's just a pile of bones. That's the point. But ultimately here, we see here, uh, God is going to use the sword of the oppressor to judge the oppressors. And then he's going to take oppressor supreme, aka Babylon, and bring judgment on him finally and totally. Now, Chapter 26, verse 1, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. So in chapter 25, we were a few years after this. Now we take a step back. We go to the first year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And the word came from the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I've set before you and to listen to the words of my servant, the prophets whom I sent you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, we find this same reference to Jeremiah going to the temple and giving a sermon that basically says, Repent, relent, stop disobeying, or I will take this temple and make it like Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was in the days of Eli, the high priest who raised up Samuel. And Eli and his sons were not good priests, and Israel was not in a good place, and they take the ark out to try and Overpower their enemies with the presence of God and it doesn't work and the Philistines win and the Philistines trample and destroy the tabernacle and take the ark as loot and he says you're so confident in your temple these days but I'm going to make it like Shiloh now it's not most likely a similar sermon given on another occasion but actually the same sermon Seen through another lens. Okay, we call it the Temple Sermon because its content is about the temple, and its location that it's given is the temple. Okay, but what? Why we're reviewing it here is because for the first time we find out what happens next. Okay. Beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, Jeremiah is called to the temple, gives this sermon about the coming destruction of the temple that it will become like Shiloh, and what happens, verse 7, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied? In the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh. And this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Now this is not, as we'll see, just an angry mob. They're actually going to drag Jeremiah to court because they believe that he's a false prophet. Now, if you wind your way back in Jeremiah, this is one of the more significant, not his first, but one of the more significant early prophecies of Jeremiah, and when we encountered it in chapter 7, we got the whole sermon, and then we moved on. Here we get a summary, and then we find out what happens next, and basically, he's accused of being a false prophet. Now, the sentence for being a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy, is death. But the reason they think that he's false, notice they say, you've prophesied in the name of the Lord. He hasn't given his opinion here. He said, thus says the Lord. But the thing that they find intolerable and impossible is that what he's prophesying is the destruction of the temple, the pride and joy of Jerusalem, God's very house. Okay, And so they, uh, they take hold of him in verse 10 when the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. In Jerusalem, there wasn't a big courthouse, there was the city gate. The city gate is where cases were heard and held, and so the officials, the elders of Jerusalem come, and they take their seat as judge to hear the complaint against Jeremiah made by the priests and the people. Verse 11, then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against this city as you've heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, okay. So here Jeremiah gives a chance to address his, uh, uh, his, what do we call those? Accusers, there we go. Address his accusers, to give his own testimony for what's going on. And remember, Jeremiah throughout the book really wrestles internally with his role. He complains to God about how difficult it is. He even questions if God has fully abandoned him, if he'll ever even survive long enough to see his word validated. But it's amazing how often when Jeremiah is pushed publicly, How steadfast his response is. And that's what it is here. So notice verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. In other words, he doubles down. He says, Did I stutter? You, you heard me right. And most importantly, he says, the Lord has given me this message. And that's why I've carried it to you. So please hear it because it comes from the mouth of God. But then notice verse 14. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. He says, I am subject to your sentencing. You have my fate in your hands. And he says, I'll surrender myself to it. He says, but I'm innocent, and that will be innocent blood on your hands. Okay? It's funny because a case like this is a hard one to judge in a court of law, right? Jeremiah says, the Lord gave me this message. And the law says, if the Lord hasn't spoken to him, he must die but how do they know? Jeremiah reiterates it, he lays it on the table, and then he reminds them that there is a second judgment here, that there's a court case that kind of superimposes around this court case, that Jeremiah is not really the one on trial today, but Jerusalem is. And if they take innocent blood, then that innocent blood will not go unpunished. And that adds a little bit of sobriety to the event. And so notice verse 16, then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, okay? So the judge, as well as the crowds, draw their own opinion. We see both the civil court and the court of public opinion respond to this. And remember, they're all in the same basket. Jeremiah dies, that's blood on all their hands collectively, and so notice what they say, this man does not deserve to die the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Okay. Brothers, sisters, let's be reasonable here, right? But then notice verse 17, a certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people saying, Micah of Morasheth, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said, all, said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house a wooded height. Okay, so some of the leaders speak up, and what they're looking for here is precedent, right? They open the law books, they blow it off, and they go, you know what? Jeremiah is not the first prophet, not the first one who said he came from God and prophesied the end of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. They said there was another prophet by the name of Micah, in the days of good king Hezekiah, the last good king before Josiah. And he came, and he gave a pretty similar message. Now, notice here that, again, they're not referencing merely a historical tale, but quoting scripture. When they mention the words of uh, Micah here, they quote directly from the book of Micah, okay, from Micah chapter 3. And so, basically, they're, again, demonstrating to us that the words of the prophets were gathered and written, collected and recognized as being scriptural, held onto, meditated on. This is being recalled, not after they go back for a recess to blow the dust off the scrolls and take another look, but from memory, because they're living in these things. They know these words, but just as we saw Daniel engaging with Jeremiah, so we see the crowds of Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah engaging with with the book of Micah, one of the minor prophets, okay? But notice the point here. The point is what happened then? Like Jeremiah, he said he spoke in the name of the Lord. Like Jeremiah, he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. How did Hezekiah, a well-known and applauded good king respond? Verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all of Judah put them to death? Him to death? Did he not fear the Lord? and entreat the favor of the Lord, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he pronounced against them? But we're about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. They go, when Micah spoke, Hezekiah listened. All of Judah listened. They responded. They repented, and the disaster that Micah warned didn't come to pass. Now, verse 20 continues and talks about another man, also a prophet, but Depending on your translation, you may notice that the quotations end in verse 19, okay? The reason is because most translators believe that this is all that this elder gets up to share, a good example, and calls, therefore, for Jeremiah's release, expressing his innocence, lets him go. But the author, our narrator, whether it's Jeremiah or Baruch, also wants us to understand that this is a surprising development, and so it gives us another story, not from Judah's history not from a few kings back but from the same reign of Jehoiakim and how it went differently for another prophet okay and so this is included here not as another piece of evidence at the court case but a parenthetical aside to help us understand something else so look at verse 20 there was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. Now that's not the Uriah that you might recognize the name of, the husband of Bathsheba, who David puts to death hundreds of years before this. But another Uriah here, uh, who is relatively unknown, only referenced here, but was a prophet, spoke for God, he prophesied against this city, and against the land in the words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim with all his warriors and all the officials heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. Okay, completely different response. And actually Uriah responds differently too. So the king sends out his officials with a warrant for his arrest, sentenced to death, and notice it says, but Uriah heard of it. He was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. That might actually be significant because God tells Jeremiah all the way back at the beginning. He says, if you will stand firm, I will keep you standing. But Uriah doesn't stand firm. He, he runs away. And he runs to Egypt. And that's unfortunate. Now, here's what's going on in kind of the geopolitical landscape, just to remind you. Jehoiakim was not the first son of Josiah to take the throne. Jehoahaz was. And Jehoahaz was anti-Egypt. And so Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, came in and he deposed Jehoahaz and he put Jehoiakim on the throne in his place. And we assume, it's never stated explicitly, we assume that's because Jehoiakim was pro-Egypt. He has a good relationship with Pharaoh. And so the unfortunate thing that happens to Uriah here is he flees to a place where he will not find any sort of political protection. And so notice what it says here, verse 22, King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, El Nathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt. Don't think that they snuck in and kidnapped him. This is not a, you know, uh, SEAL Team 6 type event. They just go to Pharaoh and go, hey, you're harboring a political criminal. We'd like him back. And he goes... We've got a truce, we've got a treaty, so take him, okay? Verse 23, they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Now, why are we told that story? I would suggest to you it's for two reasons. One, because as we'll see, there is a pivotal difference, something going on that protects and preserves Jeremiah. That's the next verse. But second, Jehoiakim doesn't escape the sentence of shedding innocent blood. And so just because we see what looks like a positive response to Jeremiah's ministry where they go, maybe God did send him. For one, we see no following repentance. They don't actually respond to it. They just don't have the guts to put him to death. But also they have innocent blood on their hands in the case of Uriah. So what was the difference? Notice in verse 24, but the hand of Ahikam. The son of Shephan was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over the people to be put to death. Now, we're not told if Ahikam was the one who told about Micah or if he was just, you know, working behind the scenes and smoothing things over and pushing people to the right response. But here's what is interesting. Ahikam, the son of Shephan, is uh, referenced in Second Kings 22 during the reign of Josiah, Josiah the reformer king. He's one of those who's with Josiah when the scroll is found in the temple. In other words, it would make sense that he would be sympathetic to Jeremiah's ministry because he's one of Josiah's men. Okay. And so it's the presence here of an unknown agent who's working on Jeremiah's half that leads to his deliverance. It's similar to when Paul finds himself in prison. And the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin in fact, have had it up to here with Paul they realize the justice system isn't going to work in their favor, and so they go, you know what, we're just going to wait until they're transporting him from one prison to another, and we're just going to jump him and kill him and run away. But conveniently, conveniently, this plot is overheard by Paul's cousin. And so Paul's cousin comes and says, Paul, I heard the weirdest conversation yesterday down the street from my house. And so Paul says, oh, you should tell the head centurion here and so the plot is foiled serendipitously because of this other actor off the scene. Okay? This is in both cases God working for preservation. And you might, and rightly so, ask, well, what about Uriah? The issue here is not some sort of philosophy that God will never let those who work for him suffer or die. The church history is full of martyrs but that he is sovereign in circumstances and Jeremiah still has work to do. And so just as he promised, he's preserved past this place. Okay. Now we move on to another oracle in chapter 27 and in doing so we move forward again. Okay, so Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then the final king before Babylon sacks Jerusalem, Zedekiah. And chapter 27, verse 1, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Okay? And so he basically says, take two pieces of wood and strap them together just like a yoke that you would use for an animal that's pulling a plow. And as we'll see, it's part of a costume. That Jeremiah is going to don, and not just for this particular party we're about to read about but he's going to continue to wear it around the streets for the next duration one of the things again we need to remember in Jeremiah is God doesn't just give him a message for Sunday he gives him a message for a season and he basically does that message until God gives him a new message and so part of that message is bound up in this imagery of a yoke okay verse 3 send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, the hands of the envoys that have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Okay. So all the surrounding nations have sent representatives to a big meeting. What are we going to do about the Babylon problem? Okay. Now, again, a little bit of history. So like Jehoahaz was depossessed of the throne and replaced with a pro- Egypt, Jehoiakim. Jehoiachin was depossessed by the king of Babylon and replaced by Zedekiah, who was supposed to be a pro-Babylon king. But at this meeting, he's convinced by the surrounding nations to join an uprising because Babylon's having some struggles on the eastern front with some of their other kingdoms. And they go, this is the time to get rid of Babylon. Okay? This is the big meeting that will send Babylon in full reversal, running to surround Jerusalem and lead to its destruction. Okay, it's this meeting. And like I said, maybe it's at this meeting that Jeremiah actually physically carries this cup around and offers it to all the envoys, these representatives of the kings, to speak of what's coming. Um, But either way, he shows up to the party in a yoke like oxen would wear. Verse 4, give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I've also given him all the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his sons and his grandson until the time his own land comes, right? Which we know is 70 years. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Okay. So what is the message he passes on to all the envoys here? Nebuchadnezzar works for me, the God who made everything, the God to whom everything belongs and who has the right to give it to whoever I please. And I've chosen Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. He continues verse 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and puts its neck under the yoke of the kingdom of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I've consumed it by his hand. Now, we talked about this last week. When the siege was going on, Jeremiah speaks to Jerusalem and he says, God is in this, he's bringing about judgment. We're at, you know, past the point of no return. If you fight against now, you're fighting against the will of God. If you surrender to Babylon, you also surrender to God, and you'll make it out of this with your lives. We see it's the same circumstances with the other nations. As they're plotting to resist Babylon and to overthrow their tribute to him, Jeremiah steps in and he goes, it's not going to work, and all it will bring you is pestilence and sword and famine, in other words, sieges, okay? Okay. And through that, there will be destruction. Verse 9, so do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. Just like in Jerusalem, in all of these other capital cities, there were those who spoke to know the fates, to know the stars, to know the, you know, the thoughts of the gods, to say, Babylon will never win. And Jeremiah says, that's not true. Verse 10, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I'll leave in his own land to work it and to dwell there, declares the Lord. Okay, so this he speaks to all the nations and then he speaks directly to the king of Judah, Zedekiah, verse 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation, sorry, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the kings of Babylon? do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you. I've not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish and you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Okay, so he speaks to the envoys, he speaks to the king and he's not done yet. Verse 16, then I spoke to the priests And all the people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you. At this point in Judah's history, under the king right before this, Jehoiachin, Babylon has already come in, taken Jehoiachin and his mom and all the leaders of Israel, all the people the higher ups in Jerusalem and anything of deep worth in the temple. Uh, presumably the ark, the golden lampstand, any of the silver utensils. All he's left is behind is the bronze altar, the bronze sea, the bronze pillars, and he'll come and get those later. But apparently, false prophets have spoken up, and even this, Jeremiah the whole time has been saying, Babylon's coming, Babylon's going to attack. They do, they take things away, and still the prophets maintain, everything's fine. They take the evidence to the contrary around them and they scrub it away and they say, actually, God's just going to have them return them. They're all going to come back. In fact, they believed that Jehoiachin was going to come back and Zedekiah would be removed from the throne and they would be back to the rule of Jehoiachin. But as we saw last week, that's not going to happen, nor will any of Jehoiachin's descendants sit on the throne. And then he says in verse 17 do not listen to them serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation if they are prophets and the word of the Lord is with them then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of king of Judah and Jerusalem may not go into Babylon. He says if they really spoke for the Lord they'd be interceding to say God stay your hand doom no more instead of falsely speaking again like there's no problem. This first round of the best things in the temple being stolen, that's the fire alarm ringing, strong and true. And they're running around the office going, false alarm, it's going to go off at any moment while the smoke is billowing around them. In fact, notice here, verse 19, for thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. So he says, as for the bronze stuff that's left, verse 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I'll bring them back and restore them to this place. He says, oh yeah, actually, the prophets are right. I will bring them back after I take the rest of them to Babylon and wait 70 years. But interestingly enough, we read in the book of Ezra that this is exactly what happens. That all of the implements of the temple are restored and brought back to Jerusalem just as Jeremiah promised they would be. But it's not the only prophecy Jeremiah made, is it? He also prophesied that they would go into exile and that it would be for 70 years. So remember, his whole position here is to, uh, to preserve Jerusalem from further judgment. God's choice of Babylon, his scourge of Babylon is chosen. Israel is going to have to submit Jerusalem is going to have to surrender, but they can do this one of two ways. They can cry uncle, and they can take what's coming to them, or they can fight it tooth or nail till they die. That's what Jeremiah is about. That's what the yoke is about. He's saying, take the yoke or be slaughtered. Now, again... Jeremiah isn't the only so-called prophet in Jerusalem, and we meet a new one here who responds specifically to this message, chapter 28, verse 1, in that same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, okay, now notice this is not a private conversation. This is a prophet battle. It's very public and intentional. Hananiah finds Jeremiah wearing the yoke, doing his thing, and he enters in and begins to engage loudly with Jeremiah and speak his own prophecy. And this is what he says, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay? So he steals Jeremiah's object lesson. And he says, thus says the Lord, I'm going to break the yoke. And then notice, just like Jeremiah had spoken of 70 years, he goes, no, no, no. Two years tops. Everything's coming back. And so not only does he speak here for the Lord, but he speaks specifically. And that's important because Deuteronomy tells us that the primary test of a prophet is, does his word come to pass? And so as soon as he gives this prophecy, and notice again there in verse uh, 1, in the fifth month of the fourth year, it's like you can hit the chess clock, okay? And the countdown begins that is going to either prove if Hananiah is God's prophet or not. Jeremiah's chest clock's a little bit longer. You're going into Babylon. That's going to happen. It's during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who's on the throne right now. And when it happens, 70 years. But Jeremiah won't be there to see it. But Hananiah, two years. And so he says this. Okay, verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of all the priests and all the people who were standing around the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Now at first, it sounds like Jeremiah is just resonating with the message, as if he was saying, I really, honestly, fully wish that were the case. But Hananiah hasn't given a prayer, has he? He's given a prophecy, Jeremiah says, let it be so, but that's not all he says. He goes on to say, he continues here, and he says, yet, verse 7, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. The prophets who, uh, who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesied peace, When the word that the prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. He says, Hananiah considered two things. He says, I wish you were speaking the truth. I wish you were God's representative and what you just said was going to come to pass. But let me remind you two things. One, the prophet's primary job description is a call to repentance. And so all the prophets before us have warned of impending judgment and famine and called for repentance. Whereas the message you're presenting maintains the status quo everything's fine. In fact, there's no reason given, is there, for this reversal or why it happened in the first place. There's no interpretation for why the king of Babylon slipped through God's defenses and stole this stuff from the temple to begin with, but he's got to figure it out and everything will be fine. It asks nothing of the people. And so he just, first he just says, do you really feel like you're standing in line with our prophetic heritage? And the second thing he says is, Notice again there verse 9, as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. The second thing is he says, don't forget how this works. If you're going to speak and says the Lord is going to bring this to pass in two years, that is all the evidence that is needed to prove if you speak for God or not. And Hananiah thinks it over and this is how he responds. Verse 10, then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah of the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. And so notice, just like we've been seeing with Je- Jeremiah, here the message goes universal. First, it was just about the king of Judah. Judah. In the temple, now it's all the nations. Babylon as an empire is going to be dead in two years' time. And he takes the yoke that Jeremiah has been wearing for X amount of days, and he breaks it over his knee, and he throws it on the ground, and he says, that's what God's going to do. He doubles down in his confidence and maintains, God has sent me. This will come to pass. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way, which is interesting Because again, put yourself in the shoes of an onlooker. You're watching these two prophets arguing about the future of your people. It kind of looks like Hananiah 1, doesn't it? I mean, at least in terms of demonstrative power, it's pretty impressive. He just took the yoke of Jeremiah and broke it and made a proclamation and Jeremiah stops there. And one of the reasons Jeremiah stops here is because he's actually a prophet. And God doesn't tell him anything to respond. And he just goes home. But the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 12. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord. Now notice this is different. It's a little bit later, and Jeremiah goes somewhat privately to Hananiah. Now Hananiah is one of a group of prophets He probably has a family. He probably has friends. So I'm not saying that he waited till no one was around to convey this message, but it's not this big public thing in the middle of the temple. The message that he carries here is not a message for Judah. It's a message for Hananiah, And so he goes to him privately, and this is what he says, verse 13. Go tell Hananiah. thus says the Lord, you've broken wooden bars, but you've made in their place bars of iron. Now, notice that. That's not just, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever, you know, say bounces off me and sticks to you. That's not the idea here. It's your part of the problem. Your false prophecy is perpetuating the need for judgment. It's almost as if God just says, you've just solidified my desire to bring judgment even more. You've just proved my point, okay? You think that you've broken the wood yoke, but now there's a yoke of iron waiting, He continues here, he says, uh, verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made the people trust in a lie. Therefore, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of this earth. This year you shall die because you uttered rebellion against the Lord. So notice here, privately, Jeremiah gets specific on his timeline. Jeremiah makes a prophecy that will be proven to be true or false. We will find out if Jeremiah actually speaks. Now again, this is a private conversation, but it's written down in a public scroll. The fate of Hananiah is going to be well known. At the end of the two years, they're going to see if he was a prophet. Did the things, the vessels get returned? Was Jeconiah re-put on the throne? And here, Jeremiah says, you're not even going to be around to see it. This year, you will die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17, in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Okay, now two things. One, in the seventh month, if you go back to 28 verse one, we started this story in the fifth month. Okay, in other words, it's not 12 months or 11 months or 10 months, it's two months that Hananiah lives until his sentence is meted out by the Lord. He said in two years all will be returned and he's put to death by the Lord in two months. But the second thing that I wanted to point, you, point out here is do you see how this validates Jeremiah the prophet? In Deuteronomy it says don't be afraid of the prophet who says he speaks for me and his things don't come to pass. Don't fear him, Israel, because I did not send him. But Jeremiah speaks for the Lord. And here again is evidence. In fact, we're in the reign of Zedekiah right now. He said that Je- Jeconiah was going to go. He said that Jehoahaz was going to go. He said that Joachim's uh, you know, uh, uh, rule wasn't going to last. He's been right each and every time. And yet Israel refuses to listen and continues to entertain the false prophets. Okay. And so it's, it's discouraging Um, But here again, we just see how Israel consistently, Judah in particular, how rigidly they stick their fingers in their ears and refuse what's right in front of them. You would think, I mean, it's bold, sure, for the prophets to maintain peace when they've already been sacked once. But isn't it more surprising that they haven't lost their credibility? That their audience was like, oh, well, you said we were fine, and now half our temple is gone, and most of our kings and his advisors are gone, but now you say everything's going to be fine? Okay, right? Where's the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice thing? That's how committed they are to not changing their ways, because there's two choices. Either Jeremiah speaks for God, and therefore they must repent or they can continue to live the way they're living, and they're devoted to that outcome, come what may. That's the problem. That's the problem of Judah that God is addressing. That's the one that is solved or met by the 70 years of exile. And as we'll see next week, there is good in this story. There is positive. But like I've said before, just like that children's book, going on a bear hunt, can't go around it, can't go over it. They're gonna have to go through it. Let's pray. Father, stubbornness is so easy to see in everyone else but ourselves. We feel like we have good reasons for thinking the way we think, for not changing our opinion. But it's so easy to see in other people's lives how they are clearly foolish in their iron neck. And I just pray, Lord, that you would soften not just our necks, but our hearts. That we would be swift to see our sins. That we would be quick to confess. That as James says, we would be quick to hear and slow to speak. That we would be like Job, who puts our hand over our mouth. Instead of responding and laying out a defense. And I pray that you would protect us, Lord, from these false messages that say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And again, Lord, we're struck by by Jeremiah's faithfulness. Lord, we know that he wrestles on the inside, but he speaks for you, and when you do not speak, he closes his mouth. And you call him into dangerous places, and unlike Uriah, he stands his ground and suffers the consequences and believes your promise That you you will help him to persevere. I ask, Lord, that you'd make us like that. That you would help us to be faithful. To stand true and firm. To speak for you. We thank you for your word, Lord. May we be like the best version of Jerusalem that read the words of Micah and understood what it meant. May we be like Daniel And meditate on your word and see how it connects with the times and seasons and the days that we're living in. May it draw us into prayer to intercede, to confess, to ask for your promises and say, let the things you say are coming, come. And may it fill our bones and our heart like it does Jeremiah. And the thing is, Lord, your word doesn't seem very productive in Jeremiah's audience, but it changes him. We pray that we'd be changed as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.